Welcome, everyone. Welcome, including to our live stream audience, welcome. Uh, my name is Gail Harriet, uh, and I am chair. That's not that great a name. <laughs> Um, I am chair of the Civil Rights Practice Group, and I'm up here for two reasons. One is to tell you that you too can be a member of the Civil Rights Practice Group. Uh, if you'd like to be, um, just speak to me or speak to Dean Reuter or shoot us an email, um, whatever you'd like. And my second task up here is to introduce our moderator, the Honorable James Ho. And I take particular pleasure in this, this introduction uh, because I have actually known Judge Ho since before he went to law school. Um, now, you know, you might notice there's a bit of an age gap between the two of us. So I had been practicing law. I'd been a member of the law for, for the bar for like 15 years at that point. But since then, Judge Ho has gone to the University of Chicago Law School, clerked for Judge Jerry Smith, uh, was a, a special assistant to the Assistant Attorney General for Civil Rights, uh, was an attorney advisor in the Office of Legal Counsel, uh, worked for the Senate Judiciary Committee under Senator Cornyn, clerked for Judge Clarence Thomas, was Solicitor General um, of Texas, um, and was the co-chair of the Litigation and Constitutional Law Practice Group at Gibson, uh, Dunn, and Crutcher before being confirmed by a vote of 53 to 43. That's pretty good these days. Uh, to, to, that's a landslide. Um, to, to the United States Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit. And I have one thing to say to you, Judge Ho, and that is you sure know how to make a girl feel old. Uh, <laughs> so take it away. Thank you, Gail. That was uh, <clears throat> very, very uh, generous and kind. Uh, my name is Jim Ho. And I am profoundly honored uh, to moderate today's uh, very interesting panel. Um, and I want to apologize at the outset if my voice is a little weaker than it, it's normal uh, for me. Uh, the good news is my introduction will therefore have to be uh, relatively short. Um, <clears throat> 28 years ago, a high school student, uh, a senior who had immigrated from Taiwan to the United States, uh, started to apply for college. Uh, his admissions advisor told him that his grades, SAT scores, the rest of his application uh, were all you know, quite strong and uh, in theory strong enough to get him into his top choice of schools, uh, but for one thing, uh, his race. Three decades later, the Federal Society has invited that former high school senior to moderate this panel. <laughs> I am delighted to do so because it means that I finally get to ask this amazing panel of experts about the advice I got way back in 1990. And I have two basic questions uh, that I hope our panelists will answer for us. First of all, is it true? Uh, the title of today's panel, rather provocative, Discrimination Against Minorities. Is it true uh, that some of our nation's uh, colleges and universities uh, are engaged in discrimination against minorities? And second, if it is true, uh, is it justified? 
is it legal? Is it legal under current judicial precedents? Uh, and is it legal under the plain text uh, and original understanding of our Constitution and, and various statutes? Uh, so our first speaker today uh, will be Patrick Strawbridge. He's a partner at the law firm of Consovoy McCarthy Park, one of the law firms uh, who's playing a leading role in the current case against Harvard University. Uh, he'll give us an update, uh, up-to-date, uh, very recent news. Uh, the trial just finished, as I understand it. And so he'll give us a great update on the Harvard litigation, the complaint, the discovery, hopefully, uh, and the recent trial proceedings just over these past few weeks. Next, we will hear from Dr. Nagai, Althea Nagai, a research fellow at the Center for Equal Opportunity, who will talk about various statistical studies that she has done analyzing these various educational admissions policies and their effects on minorities, particularly the Asian American community. Uh, we will then uh, have two distinguished law professors who will take, I predict, will be opposite stands uh, on the merits uh, of, these, of these suits. We'll, we'll see how good, uh, good I am at predicting. Uh, we have with us Professor Andrew Koppelman, the John Paul Stevens Professor of Law at the Northwestern University School of Law, and Professor John Yu, Professor of Law at the University of California at Berkeley. Uh, he's here under my protest since I am a very loyal Stanford alum. <laughs> I'm going to invite each speaker to begin uh, with some opening statements, uh, and then I'll invite some dialogue between the panelists. Uh, I expect we'll have an interesting clash of ideas. I certainly hope we will. Uh, and then we will certainly try to leave ample time uh, for members of the audience to ask questions. Uh, and again, to ask questions. Uh, we'll uh, be, be policing that uh, particular federal society policy uh, with the full letter of the law. Uh, we'll begin with Mr. Strawbridge. Well, thank you, Judge. And I just wanted to take the opportunity to thank the Federalist Society. Um, panels like this are one of the reasons why um, a lot of us join the Federalist Society and look forward to this. And it's a, a real honor to be invited on behalf of the firm to present a little bit on this case, uh, which you may not have heard about, but it has gotten a little bit of press coverage, uh, especially over the last year or so. Um, I'm going to do my best to sort of set the table, kind of describe briefly as, uh, as I can the background of the case, how we got to where we are, and, and in particular culminating in what was a three-week uh, bench trial that was held in uh, the District of Massachusetts uh, last month in October, um, and then talk a little bit about where the case is likely to head next, um, and then that'll frame some of the discussions that I, I imagine we're going to have for the next couple hours. Um, so these, these cases were filed almost four years ago. Uh, it was it's like four years ago uh, next week, I think, um, on behalf of Students for Fair Admissions. Um, uh, the case was, there was a case that was filed against uh, Harvard, and there was a case that was filed against the University of North Carolina at the same time. Um, Students for Fair Admissions is an association, a nonprofit 501c3 organization that is opposed to the use of race in college admissions. Um, it currently has more than 20,000 members, um, many of whom have, uh, have contributed financially or in other ways. Um, and using an association like Students for Fair Admissions is a long established way to, uh, to, to pursue civil rights litigation in particular. Um, uh, and it, it, it creates, uh, by, by suing for an association, you are able to avoid uh, some of the difficulties that come from how some of these affirmative action cases have been litigated in the past, which is on behalf of an individual applicant who then has to demonstrate some kind of damages or, 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 or entitlement to relief 
an association that seeks injunctive relief, which is what these claims seek. They just see, simply seek to uh, limit and or end the use of race in the college admissions process. Um, uh, allows you to, to bring the litigation on behalf of the organization. We do have members, the, the Harvard complaint mentions one particular Asian American member. We have, we have a number of other members who you can rely upon for standing. They all uh, applied to Harvard and were rejected um, under the, the Grutter and Gratz cases. Uh, uh, those individual members would have standing if they can demonstrate that they were denied a fair opportunity to compete in the admissions process uh, in part because the admissions process itself uses race. Uh, and so that is the individual injury that some of our members have, uh, but because we seek only injunctive relief, the members are not actually necessary to pursue the claims. The organization can assert the claims on behalf of them. So Students for Fair Admissions filed its lawsuit uh, in November of 2014. Uh, the complaint against Harvard uh, included six counts. Uh, the first count, all of these counts are under Title VI, of the Civil Rights Act, um, which prohibits, uh, I, can t I can read you the text since I, I know the text is of some passing interest to the people in this room. Uh, <laughs> no person in the United States shall, on the ground of race, color, or national origin, be excluded from participation in, be denied the benefits of, or be subjected to discrimination under any program or activity receiving federal financial assistance. And so for everyone who's wondering why a private school is subject to, to, to this lawsuit, the answer is, Harvard takes tens of millions of dollars in federal money in a variety of different ways, research grants, enactment uh, uh, of certain educational programs, and that is what subjects them to uh, the requirements of Title VI. Um, uh, so the, the, the six individual counts, the first one, which has obviously been the focus of uh, this case, will probably be the subject of a lot of our discussion today, alleges that Harvard is intentionally discriminating against Asian American applicants and has been for a number of years. I'll, I'll just run through the counts and then I'll, I'll come back and circle back and talk a little bit about what the evidence on these counts, how, how that has developed. Uh, the second count is basically uh, an allegation of racial balancing apart from an individual discrimination against Asian American applicants, just generally Harvard is engaged in what's known as impermissible racial balancing, attempting to achieve a certain level of racial representation uh, through its admissions process. The third is a claim that it is using race for more than a plus factor, which is the language from Grutter, um, which is, is the current governing standard for, for when race can be used in the admissions process. Uh, the fourth count basically asserted that, that, that Harvard was not simply using race to fill the last few seats in the class as a tiebreaker, um, which is what was um, taken from the Bakke decision. Um, and it was just, a, just a, a determination, which frankly is not contested in this litigation, that that is not how Harvard was using race. Um, uh, there was also a uh, account that was based on the fact that Harvard has race-neutral alternatives available to it that could achieve the educational benefits of diversity um, without actually using race as part of the admissions decision-making process. Um, uh, that, is a, that is a claim, I think, that was was front and center in the Fisher litigation um, and the future of that claim or, or the future of what the standard is for race-neutral alternatives count um, I think was, was, was left a little unsettled by the Fisher II decision but uh, is still something that's an active part of the applicable constitutional test. Uh, and then the sixth claim uh, is, that, is that in any event, uh, Grutter should be overruled um, uh, if Harvard's not liable under, under these, these other counts. Um, uh, the complaint is uh, the complaint is is, uh, is makes for good reading. It is very lengthy. Um, the complaint was 
filed in 2014. Harvard elected not to move to dismiss the complaint. Um, and I think a motion to dismiss would have been futile, but it is still interesting that they did not at least attempt a motion to dismiss. They, they answered the complaint, and, and one does wonder, uh, being on the other side of the, of the V, I can only speculate here, but, but, but one does wonder whether they realized what they were buying with their answer in terms of the level of discovery that we were going to seek in this case, because although no one has ever told me this, I think they may have assumed this was going to be like the Fisher case, maybe a 30B6 deposition, maybe some, some limited discovery instead. Um, Students for Fair Admissions came in and, and we wanted to see the files, we wanted to see the records, um, uh, and that is, that is, you know, where the case really began to heat up. Um, I'll talk a little bit about the, the scope of discovery and then talk about the evidence that was developed, you know, through that discovery. Um, we ended up, there was, a, there, was a, there was a stay in this case that kind of slowed it down for about a year and a half. There was partial discovery while Fisher II was being granted and considered by the Supreme Court. Um, but ultimately, Student for Fair Admissions obtained six years of individualized level applicant data. It was, names were redacted and certain identifying information was redacted, but we had access to Harvard's admissions database covering a six-year period, um, and that included everything about extracurricular activities, um, uh, their, their academic accomplishments in high school, um, so Harvard's internal ratings for the applicants as they went through the process, and of course, the disposition of their application. Um, we received tens of thousands of pages of documents, including some very interesting internal reports that Harvard's admissions uh, office had been involved in, uh, if not actually assisted in preparing. Um, we took more than 20 depositions of Harvard admissions employees, Harvard administrators, and, and or third parties. Um, uh, and uh, ultimately, both sides obtained experts. The primary expert battle in this case was between a couple of economists SFFA retained an economist from Duke, uh, Peter Arcidiacono, who's written a lot on, on the use of race in college admissions. Um, and uh, Harvard retained David Card, an economist at Berkeley, um, who is, is, is also somewhat renowned in the field. And um, they, uh, I, think, I think Dr. Nagai, and, and we'll talk a little bit about the statistical evidence uh, as we get into it. Uh, we also had an expert on race-neutral alternatives. Uh, SFFA retained Rick Collenberg, um, and if anyone's familiar with Rick Collenberg's work, he's for 20 or 30 years been probably the foremost uh, writer and thinker on socioeconomic preferences in generally, but alternatives to use of race in the admissions process. Uh, and Rick Collenberg is, is, is a progressive, you know, uh, think tank um, uh, representative. He's been a senior fellow at the Century Foundation, um, and uh, I think was a very compelling witness precisely because he does not necessarily share the, 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 the goals with respect to the use of race in college admissions that members of the organization do or, 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 or other folks do in this area. But he, you know, firmly believes and presented testimony that, that there are ways to achieve uh, a comparable level of racial diversity without actually using race in the admissions process, and that we'll talk a little bit about, about those options as well. Um, expert discovery, it's a fact discovery closed in, at the end of 2017. Expert discovery went for basically another eight months on top of that. Um, we uh, then arrived at a decision point in the case, which was that, you know, the parties had always assumed and there was baked into the schedule a summary judgment proceeding. Um, 
uh, we showed up for a conference to discuss how summary judgment was going to proceed, and uh, Harvard, represented very ably by Wilmer Hale, um, Seth Waxman, and Bill Lee, uh, the former managing partner of the firm, a number of other very talented and, and, and excellent lawyers, uh, showed up at that hearing and proposed that we not file summary judgment, that we go directly to trial, um, which was a little unusual and, frankly, I think was an attempt to, um, to see if they could uh, 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 use their resource advantage. Um, and I think this was an interesting decision point in this case because our firm, Constable McCarthy Park, was a startup firm. Uh, we work very hard, but we do not have the resources of Wilmer Hale. Um, and it was, I think, a recognition by that, an attempt to basically say, why don't we skip summary judgment and go straight to trial? Well, the good news was that caused us to rethink our strategy, although we were ultimately successful in filing summary judgment and, and getting the court's permission, which we had to request, to file a summary judgment motion. Um, it did cause us to think, well, maybe, maybe we should look and see if anyone would be willing to help us. And so a very small trial firm by the name of Bartlett Beck uh, volunteered to help us. Um, and and, and that, was a, that was a huge boost to us as we headed into the trial. And I'm just going to I'm going to talk a little bit about it, about it in a minute, but that was a very interesting decision point in the case. And if they had not been so aggressive in pushing us to trial, it may not have actually come out that way. But thankfully, Bartlett Beck was there. Um, both sides filed summary judgment. Um, uh, that all came out in June. It was the first time most of the evidence in the case reached the public light. There was an awful lot of press coverage, uh, most of it surprisingly favorable. Um, uh, for the first time, I like eagerly awaited the publication of the New York Times to see. <laughs> It was very unsettling to wake up and realize, like, the New York Times was writing favorable, favorable stories about our case, but it was, uh, it was, it was no less welcome. Um, the, um, uh, you know, it, the summary judgment was, was comprehensive, to say the least. Our statement of material facts featured 900 paragraphs. Uh, it was 195 pages long. Um, there was a lot of, there was, there was a lot to, there was a lot to say, and, and we certainly said it all. Um, uh, Harvard vociferously opposed summary judgment, and I think as the court had largely telegraphed to the parties back at the first hearing, to no surprise, shortly before the scheduled trial in October, the court denied summary judgment and said there are a lot of fact issues here that I need to dig into. Um, and so we went to trial. Uh, trial started on October 15th in Boston. Uh, it was, we were in front of Judge Allison Burroughs, um, who was a longtime uh, US, assistant U.S. attorney in Boston, uh, had been on the bench for five or six years, was appointed by President Obama uh, in his second term. Um, uh, judge Burroughs, I'll, I'll say this, um, Judge Burroughs has been an exceedingly fair judge and I think uh, has issued some written decisions. There were disputes over standing and discovery issues early on, uh, and I, I think that you know, we very much feel like the court has given us more than a fair shake and given us a chance to develop a record that, that we can take up. And um, she was very, very diligent at the trial, um, uh, really digging in. This is a bench trial. There was no jury. Um, and so we sat there in her courtroom in Boston um, for, for three weeks. Um, uh, basically, you know, there were more than a dozen live witnesses, not counting the expert witnesses. Each side put on two expert witnesses. Uh, there were some amici who came in and, and you know, current uh, people who claim that they are the beneficiary of the of the use of race that Harvard provides, and, and they were allowed a day in court to testify about, you know, what they view as the advantage of, of going through the process. Um, as I mentioned, Bill Lee, Seth Waxman, Felicia Ellsworth, a number of very talented lawyers on the Wilmer side, no surprise in a Boston courtroom that they would be flexing their muscle. 
but but I have to put in just a very brief plug for the for the trial team in addition to myself, Mike Connolly and Will Consovoy for our firm. Uh, we had the, the dynamic Adam Mortara, if anyone's ever had the pleasure of meeting Adam, he, dynamic is a good way to describe him, uh, as well as John Hughes from Bartlett Beck. Uh, their partners Scott McBride and Catherine Hacker, as well as associates Meg Sulo and, uh, and uh, Krista Perry. And they were phenomenal lawyers. If you ever have the opportunity to hire that team or Bartlett Beck, I, I strongly endorse it, unless, of course, we're also in the mix for the work, in which case <laughs> you have no choice but to hire both of us. Um, uh, but they did a fantastic job. You know, obviously, we're playing in, in Harvard's home court with, with, with Wilmer Hale, and, and uh, they did a phenomenal job presenting this case, presenting the case in a manner that I think could speak to the district judge and certainly gave us the, gives us the best opportunity to win that case. Um, it was just a phenomenal lesson as a lawyer to sit there and work alongside those lawyers and see how they presented the case, and, and we're very happy with it. Um, the trial had a little bit of everything, including some... Uh, surprise testimony in the middle of trial that necessi necessitated some uh, emergency in-trial discovery and allowed us to recall some witnesses to have them correct testimony on behalf of Harvard that they had given that turned out not to have been accurate in the middle of trial. Um, we'll talk a little bit about that, but that's always fun when you get that in, in the middle of trial. Um, and then we had closing arguments were on November 2nd. Um, there's going to be a... a, a exchange of proposed findings of fact and conclusions of law over the next couple of months and a second closing argument once all the legal briefing is done in February. I would anticipate a decision sometime, you know, probably this summer, realistically, given the size of the record in this case. And um, you know, that's, that's, that's where I'll go. I will very briefly just try to talk a little bit about the evidence that, that, that is most interesting. I'm sure we will circle back to it and revisit it at various points in time. Um, with respect to discrimination, there's really um, three key pieces of evidence on the intentional discrimination claim. Um, the first of which is a series of reports that were conducted by Harvard's Office of Institutional Research. This is their internal statistics group. They prepare reports when Harvard is up for accreditation. They, repair, they prepare reports for Harvard's reporting to the federal government. They provide reports to the governing board of Harvard about any issue that needs statistical analysis. Uh, when some attention had come to light in the popular press about potential discrimination against Asian Americans in higher education in late 2012, uh, discovery turned out that they had embarked on a, on a, on a, on a quest to, to determine whether, in fact, the admissions process disadvantaged or, in some drafts, biased, uh, was biased against Asian Americans. And they produced some very interesting findings that, frankly, I think were strong evidence that Yes, um, not only did, the, did, did Asian Americans appear to be suffering disproportionately from various factors that were used in the admissions process, but specifically this question of the fact that um, Harvard has these ratings that they assign to uh, applicants. One of them is academic, which is based on some assessment, some objective, some subjective as, as to the academic accomplishments of the students. They have an extracurricular rating, which is you know, clubs and leadership positions and activities that you do outside of the classroom. Um, they have an athletic rating, which is largely used to identify recruited athletes. It has a somewhat less significant role with respect to your athletic accomplishments, but there's a way to signal some involvement in, in high school athletics. Um, and then they have what they call the personal qualities rating. And the personal qualities rating um, is, is, according to the testimony in the case, used to measure whether someone is particularly effervescent or would be a good roommate or has courage or has good character, a very rigorous standard. Um, 
which could be applied neutrally and for which there was, there was a tremendous amount of guidance, which is to say there was no guidance on how to provide this, this rating. Um, and, and the OIR reports demonstrated what became a key issue in the fact, which is that, that the, the, the Asian Americans were, were certainly overrepresented in terms of, of, of high performance in the academic category. And Asian Americans in the pool, relative to the rest of the pool, also did better on extracurricular activities than, than everybody else. Athletic uh, was, was a bit of a wash. As, as I said, the athletic rating is simply just not as important in the admissions decisions that Harvard makes once you're not one of the 200 or so recruited athletes that Harvard is, Harvard is, um, is, is you know, recruiting for their sports teams. And then you had this personal rating, and these OIR reports demonstrated that, that, that especially or, or compared to everybody, but particularly compared to white applicants, Asian Americans were, were routinely and significantly marked lower on the personal rating. Um, and this was in stark contrast to much smaller differences that were seen with respect to the personal ratings that were assigned or, or based upon the evaluations from teachers and guidance counselors and alumni interviewers at the Harvard process. It was the personal rating assigned by the admissions office that showed a significant negative effect for being Asian American versus any other racial group. As it turns out, the statistics also revealed that African Americans and Hispanics were, were generally rated as having higher personal qualities than, than whites or, or, or Asians in a way that actually mirrors what one would expect for the use of racial preferences uh, uh, by Harvard. Um, and that becomes a key, a key part of the case. The second part of the case, besides, well, I'll just say one more thing about the OIR. The evidence was that OIR essentially produced this information, gave it to the admissions office, and the admissions office said, thank you very much, tucked it away in a drawer, and never told anyone ever about it again. There was no follow-up to see what was happening here. Why was the personal rating so low? Are we, in fact, biased against Asian Americans? The, the reports were basically you know, stuck in a desk drawer. Not even most of the admissions office was ever alerted to those findings. Um, the uh, statistical evidence compiled by the experts, I think, you know, basically confirmed that this personal rating did tend to disadvantage Asian Americans. To some extent, Harvard does not even contest that. Um, uh, they agree that, that, that compared to whites, Asian Americans do worse on this personal qualities rating. Um, they just simply offered up a number of explanations as to why that, 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 that may be so. Um, and frankly, I mean, there was evidence presented at trial by Harvard. This still surprises me, although I guess the statistics said what they said, so there needed to be some explanation. There was statistical evidence presented by Harvard at trial that the Asian applicants are just not as multidimensional as the white applicants. Um, um, and, and, and one of the keys to this argument that they're not as multidimensional was basically based on the personal rating. They get lower personal ratings, so they must not be as well balanced as, as the other applicants. And, you know, I think that there's a lot of grounds upon which to dispute that. Um, but but that, that, is, that is one of the key things in the case. And the reason why that is a key dispute in the case is because when you do a statistical analysis to determine the effect of race, everybody agrees that if a variable is directly affected by race, not just associated with race, but race is, is going into a rating in this case, then you have to take that rating out of your statistical analysis to determine what effect race is having. And both experts basically agree that if you take the personal rating if you exclude the personal rating as a control in these 200 variable models that both experts constructed, uh, both experts, including Harvard's expert, agrees that there is a statistically significant discriminatory effect in the admissions process against Asian Americans. 
So excluding the personal rating or proving that the personal rating is affected by race and that it has to be excluded from the statistical model is the key statistical uh, uh, dispute in the case. Um, there was also a number of emails and application files that suggested there was, in fact, evidence of stereotyping. I'm not going to get into, into the details. I've probably spoken too long as it is, but I just want to run through a little bit more of the key evidence. Um, but but um, you know, there was certainly phrases like standard strong that appeared uh, to disproportionately pop up on Asian American uh, notations on Asian American applicants' files um, that, that sort of confirmed this view that Asian Americans may be lumped into a category that um, made them less attractive to Harvard uh, as part of its admissions process. Um, there was uh, evidence of racial balancing. I'm just going to briefly touch upon the other, the other claims in the case. Uh, Harvard would generate reports um, that their admissions office would use when they were in their meetings. They do a two or three week meeting process to admit, to, to winnow down and decide who's getting admitted and who's not getting admitted. They do it once for the early action process and once for the regular action process. There was evidence that the admissions office received on, on a regular and sometimes every day or every other day reports that included a breakdown by the racial composition and specifically compared it to the prior year's racial composition. And this coincides with what the complaint acknowledged and what I think is not really controversial, which is across the Ivy League, there is a shocking, maybe not shocking, there is a remarkable stability in the Asian American representation at the Ivy League schools that basically runs between 18 and 20 percent over the last 10 years, and never higher, never less. And the natural comparator to that, as I'm sure others are going to talk about, is in, in in California, for example, where racial preferences are not permitted, Asian Americans make up about 40% of the elite college campuses. Um, and so it didn't seem like that, that, that was pure chance, especially if this was truly a holistic process, making individual judgments that, that it would remarkably come out to this level of racial stability, particularly for the Asian American numbers. Seems like more of a coincidence, and that's certainly evidence to support racial balancing. Um, there's the grutter, sort of more than a plus factor, I'll say on that is, is both experts actually don't disagree that with respect to African Americans and Hispanics, there are sizable racial preferences being employed. Um, Harvard's own expert witness conceded that, um, that, that if you are Hispanic, it amounts to all other things being equal, a 200% increase in your chance of admission. Um, and if you're African American, it's a 300% increase in your chance of admission. Um, whether or not those are significantly high percentages that they, that they overrule what the standard undergrutter is will have to be decided by both the district court in the first instance and ultimately the later court. But I don't think there's any question that there are you know, significant racial preferences that are being uh, uh, used here. Um, and then I just, I'll briefly talk about the race-neutral alternatives evidence. Um, you know, there was evidence presented and really not disputed by Harvard that, that, that Harvard, if it got rid of certain other admissions practices, and that would include if they got rid of legacy preferences, if they stopped giving preferences to donors and people who, who appear on the dean's list, which is a special list to track people of high interest to Harvard for reasons other than the normal application factors, uh, if they got rid of um, preferences for the children of faculty and staff, uh, and if they increased socioeconomic preferences and kind of the the benchmark for the what was presented at trial was was if you gave socio if you gave a preference for for low socioeconomic status that was rough, roughly half the size of the preference that was given to recruited athletes, um, um, you would uh, you, you could generate a, a a class a hypothetical admitted class and, and again these statistics are not really disputed um, that would. Uh, 
uh, feature an overall representation of Hispanic and African American students that would be the equivalent of what they have now. It would be slightly more Hispanic students, it would be 19% uh, and slightly less from 14% to 10%, but still a 10% African American class, which was what the size of the admitted African American class was at Harvard you know, at the beginning of the Obama administration. So not that long ago, that was a sufficient level of, of racial diversity, at least through Harvard's process at the time. Um, and then you would also, not surprisingly, see a class that decreased with the percentage of white. It was 33% white, and it would be 31% Asian American under those circumstances, as opposed to the 19, 20, 22% that we have today. Um, I'll be happy to jump in and explain. That is basically a very brief summary of what is a lot of evidence developed in this case, but it is, uh, it is going to be a fun one to watch as it moves through Judge Burroughs Court and then ultimately the First Circuit and perhaps down to one First Street. Thank you, Dr. Dugai. Okay, I'm going to pick up where he left off. I am going to talk about two reports basically that um, we've done at the Center for Equal Opportunity. They can be found at www.ceousa.org. The first one is a comparative study of three universities. We did this in May, Caltech, MIT, and Harvard. And it's in the context of whether or not these schools ask, are there too many Asian Americans? Okay, and we look at it over time because my idea was, look, the only way you can really see if they're discriminating is first of all, do we have a ceiling up here? And the reason for this is there's been an incredible growth in the Asian American population and there's been an explosion in the growth in Asian Americans attending college. Okay, so you had this incredible from about 1980 and it, you know, 60 to 80, it's small, and then you had this exponential growth. Now, what we see, Harvard, MIT, and Caltech, is until about the 1990s, you see the three schools kind of parallel that exponential growth. Caltech, MIT, percentage of Asians making up the undergraduate class, increases. Now in the early 1990s, something very interesting happens at Harvard. It goes from about 21% and then all of a sudden it drops to about 17% and it kind of stays like that for the next few decades. All the while, the percentage of Asian Americans attending college, taking the SATs, I mean, just keeps growing and growing. MIT, it increases and then just sort of drops a little bit and at some point MIT said, they stopped using alumni preference in their admission process, but did admit to using race. Now, Caltech is the only one in our case study that used neither alumni preference nor did they use um, race. Caltech in 2015, according to the federal statistics, had a population, undergraduate population of roughly 43% Asian American. This parallels the percentage of Asian Americans at the UC elite public universities, something in the low 40s. Harvard, on the other hand, kind of stayed the same. You know, it didn't really budge, and then I guess the last year it kind of went up to 22 after uh, you guys filed the lawsuit. So like, <laughs> but now, I don't know. I don't know if Harvard's counting Asians in the same way 
for public admissions versus what they have to report to the feds. I've noticed some discrepancy, and I think it was Stuart Taylor that pointed out there are different rules of counting. So my statistics are basically for enrollment figures. I take them off the U.S. government statistical um, database. Okay. Keeping that in mind, you know, Caltech goes up, um, undergrads go, uh, general Asian American population goes up, um, MIT goes up and just kind of goes down, trickles down, and Harvard goes up till 1990 and then just sort of goes down to 17 and just stayed. Okay. Because they filed their lawsuit, we found out what they were doing. And I want to thank you guys for that SSFA versus Harvard lawsuit because the summary judgment, the material facts up there, it is an unbelievable wealth of statistical data. And I don't care what Harvard says about that OIR report. Those reports coming out of their Office of Institutional Research are a gold mine. I mean, basically, it was an absolute, it's what we would have done had we had access to that data, but only better because they had tons of information. They had information on athletic status, legacy, race, everything. And this, these are not working papers. This was not a guy practicing logistic regression, blah, blah, blah. He made 20, he did a whole bunch of runs. He made over 20, maybe close to 50 charts in different formats. Um, there were PowerPoint presentations. Um, okay, he had typo here, typo there, which I guess plaintiffs, I mean, I guess Harvard pointed out that, oh yeah, he had typos. And they didn't come to a conclusion, which is usually not the role of the statistician. There was no, there was no disagreement as to how they modeled what they did. And they had some incredible data. Um, what I want to focus on is their statistician's decision to try to look at what the entering class would be like if they used only academics. And he compared whites and Asians. If they used only academics, agents would be 43%, just like Caltech. Gee, what do you know? Um, oh, and by the way, Caltech is not just a math nerdy school. They have a verbal score, median verbal score of 750. So, you know, yeah, don't, don't, you know, don't stereotype there. Okay? Okay. So, if they used only academics, Asian Americans would be 43%, whites would be 38. When they introduced the variable of Legacy and uh, D1 athlete, recruited athlete. Um, whites went up to 48%, Asian Americans dropped to 31. So right there you had a 12 percentage point drop. When they introduced the extracurricular and those notorious personal ratings, um, Asian Americans dropped even more to 26%. Whites at that point went up to 51%. Okay, the problem was they still had very few blacks and Hispanics, so they introduced race as a factor. So what happens is when you introduce all these other factors instead of race, it doesn't significantly increase the number of African Americans or Hispanics. When you introduce all these factors plus race, then blacks increase from one to two percent, they go up to 11 percent, Hispanics go up to about 10 percent. That's his model. The model for each of these groups is off by 1% of the actual enrollment figures. Okay, um, to put it in perspective, if we had presidential candidates that had statewide models like this, they would not have skipped Wisconsin. 
Okay. <laughs> These, this is a really, we, you would die for percentages like this. This is a good model. Then what they did, the, the statistician decided, oh, let's see what it would look like if we took out all the athletes who got in and all the um, legacies, because those are factors beyond the control of the candidates. And he said, okay, these, you know, you have to control for them, so why don't we just eliminate that? When he looked at just whites and Asians on all these other factors, um, besides instead of legacy and athlete, he found Asians doing better statistically than whites on every, on all the academic factors, um, slightly better um, extracurriculars. Um, they kind of evened out on recommendations, but on the personal ratings done by the admission officer, which by the way, the admission officer, I don't believe ever interviewed any of the candidates. You know, they just came up with this personal assessment that you know, you're, you're trustworthy or you have good character, whatever, you don't, they don't have to see you, they just look at your portfolio. And based on that, there was a statistically significant difference in favor of the white candidate. And this is not, this is not legacy, this is everyone who's not a legacy, not a donor, and not an athlete. So here we're talking strictly Asian and white comparison. And statistically, this is exactly what the expert witness for plaintiff also did. So, you know, this, again, they were doing duplicate things, somewhat different variables, um, combining them in somewhat different ways, but coming to the same result. Basically, no matter how you cut it, no matter what variables you use, um, you can introduce income. Um, they used first generation going to college. They introduced uh, gender as a variable. Um, they cut it in different ways. You could. OIR consistently found that being Asian was a negative, not a plus factor in admission. And this was all statistically significant. Okay. Um, one of the problems with this is Harvard, you know, the personal decision, I have to add this as a second comment, is Harvard is also the main site where they do a lot of um, implicit bias research. Okay, so there's this social science, they're, so, they're nationally known and for their implicit bias research in psychology. And it never occurred to anybody, gee, maybe when this was all done in 2013, maybe they might want to have their notorious, you know, workshops and, you know, all the things they subject all the employees to. But I don't think they ever did any of that. I don't think they talked anything about unconscious bias against any candidates, despite the fact they have all of this, this information that's just, it's just die, crying for that kind of intervention. But the intervention's only, I guess, for student and faculty and not for the admissions committee. Okay, on that, thank you. And thank you for all the work you guys did. Thank you, Dr. Nagai, uh, Professor Koppelman. Okay, uh, I'm very grateful to the Federalist Society for uh, having me here. Uh, so the affirmative action controversy is tediously familiar. It's a ubiquitous <laughs> part of American life. Uh, I'm a beneficiary of affirmative action myself because I'm the token liberal on this panel. <laughs> 
Now, for many years, uh, American <coughs> conservatives have proposed to interpret all civil rights laws, including Title VI of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, to prohibit it. Now, it's a commonplace of semantics that the exact same action can have different meanings in different contexts. Uh, so the suit, uh, Students for Fair Admission versus Harvard, presents itself as a blow against racial tribalism. Uh, what I'm going to do here is worry that in context, this could make tribalism worse. Uh, so I am going to begin by wishing a plague on both your houses, uh, the <laughs> opponents of affirmative action and also its defenders. And of course, you know, being here, uh, you, know, you guys have pride of place. I'm going to start with the opponents. Uh, so uh, Chief Justice Roberts writes, uh, often quoted sentence, that the way to stop discrimination on the basis of race is to stop discriminating on the basis of race. So his claim is that the essence of racism is classification. Uh, and the familiar liberal objection to this is that uh, this implies that black Americans can be without jobs, have their children in all black poorly funded schools, uh, have no opportunities for decent housing, have very little political power without any violation of anti-discrimination law. And to this one might add mass incarceration with its devastating effects on families and communities. Uh, and uh, if, you are if you're conservative and you're concerned about intermediate associations and uh, the values of local communities, you ought to care about that. Uh, but uh, on this account, if the problem is classification, and if that's the whole problem, then for black people to think that these in disadvantages, stamp them with a badge of inferiority uh, is solely because they choose to put that construction upon it. Uh, so I start by saying that effects matter. Uh, today, a large class of Americans remain disadvantaged because their ancestors were slaves. Uh, and the causation is clear, and so aggregate racial effects matter. Uh, you know, Patrick said that when uh, he said that uh, it's possible to achieve a comparable level of racial diversity without using race. The implication is that racial diversity matters, uh, and it matters which goals are uh, permissible to pursue. So one of the narratives at uh, the beginning of this, I have to say, fabulously well-written complaint that was filed in this case is the story of how Harvard figured out how to lower the number of Jews in the entering class uh, in the early 20th century without an explicit quota. Uh, and uh, that was not okay, but evidently, take using non-racial means for the purpose of increasing the number of black members of the entering class is okay, I think that that's an important difference. Uh, now, you can say all of that, and you can say that the numbers matter without defending affirmative action because it doesn't remedy any of the pathologies I just described. It benefits the most privileged minority applicants. It did help create a large black middle class, which is a great accomplishment, but it doesn't address the most damaging consequences of slavery and segregation. It is racial justice on the cheap. It creates the illusion of equality. And the importance of illusion is particularly transparent in Justice O'Connor's opinion in Grutter versus Bollinger. Uh, I'll just read what she wrote. 
uh, in order to cultivate a set of leaders with legitimacy in the eyes of the citizenry, it is necessary that the path to leadership be visibly open to talented and qualified individuals of every race and ethnicity. So this means that the entering class of places like Harvard is to be selected on the same principle as models in a United Colors of Benetton advertisement. Uh, this obsession with appearances drives the demand for obfuscation, as for example when the court says you can uh, use race as a plus factor but not use quotas, even though these are functional and mathematical equivalents. Uh, and it also stokes racial resentment. So for every black student who is admitted to one of these schools, you generate 100 white ones who know to a moral certainty they're the ones who would have gotten in. Uh, so I think that, uh, you know, speaking as a member of the left, uh, I don't think that the left should settle for this. It should demand a lot more. I would cheerfully jettison affirmative action in favor of measures that would actually improve the condition of the worst off people in American society, black and white. I thought that that was what defined us as left. Uh, maybe Congress could do it in a grand bargain that clarifies the Civil Rights Act while at the same time taking more concrete measures against racial subordination, but I have no illusions that that'll happen. The proposal that's on the table here is a proposal to abolish affirmative action and replace it with nothing at all. Now, you don't need to love affirmative action, I hope that uh, my lack of love is now clear, uh, to worry about uh, this lawsuit. I'm not going to try to adjudicate the merits of the lawsuit. The expert statisticians are in deep disagreement. Uh, I will say, so in response to Judge Ho's question, uh, is it true? Uh, some pretty damaging evidence has been offered here. Uh, I'm not going to adjudicate that. Uh, I'll just say it's a pretty damaging story. Uh, on the question of is it legal? No. <laughs> if, they are, if, if Harvard has a ceiling on Asian Americans, if it is discriminating against Asian Americans, that's nasty. Stop that. <laughs> Discrimination <laughs> against. <laughs> <laughs> Discrimination against an ethnic minority is exactly what the law aims to prohibit. Uh, on the other hand, it's confused to say that Asians have any particular special stake in eliminating affirmative action for African Americans. Even if you were to set, have a quota for African Americans, even if you had a rigid numerical quota, 10% of the entering class for Asian Americans, that doesn't say anything at all about what you do with the remaining slots. They're unrelated questions. Now, I think that there has been confusion here, which I think the source of the mischief is Justice Powell's opinion in Bakke, uh, which talked not at all about history, not at all about the history of racial injustice, which is what everyone had in their minds, and said, he said, you know, well, all right, so, you know, you admit some flute players and you admit some uh, people from Montana, and oh, yeah, maybe you'll admit some African Americans too. Uh, and so it opens the door for ceilings. It opens the door for jiggering the numbers throughout the class. I think that it would have been better to just say that uh, given the terrible history of mistreatment of African Americans, it's okay for the university to respond specifically to that. Diversity is just the wrong frame to think about how to respond to that past injustice. Uh, the person who uh, I think was strongest on the court in suggesting a backward-looking approach to affirmative action was Justice Stevens. He's no longer on the court. 
Uh, now, this litigation is generally understood uh, to aim uh, to beat a path to the Supreme Court and to persuade the court to discard the decades-old understanding of Title VI that came out of Bakke uh, in favor of an absolute ban on any consideration of race. And the consequence, uh, if you did that, uh, assuming that Harvard is not going to take the alternative means, they're not going to get rid of donor preferences. They're not going to get rid of preferences for children of alumni. Uh, neither one of those preferences violates any law. Uh, at many universities, it's going to produce a significant reduction in the number of black students. Uh, so uh, this may be the opening wedge of more lawsuits to come. Uh, it is reported that the Trump administration is preparing to redirect resources of the Justice Department's Civil Rights Division toward investigating and suing universities over affirmative action admissions policies that are deemed to discriminate against white applicants. So what's it going to mean? I'm just going to ask you as a cultural matter, you're members of American culture as much as I am, for a Republican Justice Department to start investigating colleges for telltale signs that there are too many African Americans. Uh, it fits, I think, quite neatly into a really dangerous narrative uh, that uh, I think is a matter of division within the Republican Party. Uh, they, so one recent poll tells us that only 27% of Republicans think that black people experience a lot of discrimination today, uh, whereas 43% think that there's a lot of discrimination against white people. Uh, now, so this litigation I think, promotes a narrative, whatever the intentions are of the litigators, I'm not saying anything about them, uh, in which incompetent and undeserving black people are taking desirable spots from deserving whites. So this frightens me. Uh, Chief Justice Roberts worries about racial tribalism, and he writes also in Parents Involved, government action dividing us by race is inherently suspect because such classifications promote notions of racial inferiority and lead to a politics of racial hostility. Reinforce the belief held by too many for too much of our history that individuals should be judged by the color of their skin and endorse race-based reasoning and the conception of a nation divided into racial blocks, thus contributing to an escalation of racial hostility and conflict. Now I note again, there's not a word about subordination. Uh, racism divides groups that are in other respects uh, imagined to be on an equal footing. Uh, the problem is, just Chief Justice Roberts understands it, is thinking about ourselves in tribal terms. But stipulate that's right and look at what this litigation does, again, to the extent that its target is all racial classification. Uh, to the extent that you're trying to get rid, if, if Harvard has a quota on Asian Americans and you're trying to get rid of that, I am all for you. Uh, but uh, to the extent that it is understood by left and right to be in effect to enlist Asian Americans to form a block with whites to resist the claims of blacks, it promotes the politics of racial hostility. Thank you. Thank you, Professor. Professor Yu. I want to uh, thank the uh, Civil Rights Practice Group for inviting me uh, to uh, leave uh, smoke enclosed California and fly here. Usually the smoke is because of marijuana, but now it's because our forests are on fire. And uh, I was barely able to fly out of San Francisco airport yesterday. 
uh, and I had to reroute to Philadelphia where being a native of Philadelphia, I picked up lunch. <laughs> Any other Philadelphians here, you're welcome to join. I got a whole rack of soft pretzels up here. <laughs> so uh, I'm trying to figure out why I was asked to be on this panel. So, uh, <laughs> it, it could be so that we could have 60% Asians on the panel, but we don't believe in quotas for Asians, but I will note if Harvard didn't use race and applications, this is probably the proportion of Asians in the freshman class. <laughs> uh, I try to, it, it could have been just because of the ricochet law talk, and since Richard Epstein's here, I have to be here too. Um, and you should know that a variety of hosts tried out to be Richard's co-host on law talk. I was the only one who could interrupt him and stop him from speaking for 45 out of the 60 minutes of the podcast. <laughs> I got him down. <laughs> Let the record show I got him down to 44 minutes. <laughs> um, and then I thought, I must have been invited so I could make fun of Jim Ho. <laughs> <laughs> so let me engage in this favorite sport of mine. <laughs> um, so uh, just uh, two quick comments. So, uh, I had the pleasure of working with Jim in the Office of Legal Counsel, and I was a little older than him. And so he came into my office one day, so I, I, have, I want to see career advice. I have a very important question to ask you. So he came into my office. I used to love screwing around with Jim. So he came into my office, I said, Jim, don't tell me. You have an illegitimate child. And he said, that was the first and last time I ever seen Jim speechless. <laughs> he goes, well, what is it really, Jim? What do you want to talk to me about? He goes, I have an offer to go work for Senator Cornyn as his chief counsel. Uh, do you think I should take the job? I'm really torn about it. I love working in the Just Farm. Should I go over there? And I said, Jim, uh, you're Asian, so you're supposed to be smart, but you have no personality. Um, if you don't take that job, you are so stupid, I'm going to fire you from OLC, and then you'll have to take the job anyway. I will not say which result ended in him moving over to the Senate but he made the right career choice. And then lastly, I figured out this is why I'm on the panel. As opposed to all of these other uh, University of Chicago graduates, all of them who hate Harvard, I'm the only one who actually went to Harvard on the panel. I am sure the president of Harvard asked for there to be representation for someone to defend the university. Unfortunately, I don't think I'm gonna be able to help out there. <laughs> so uh, my, uh, actually, the, I think the reason I'm on this panel seriously is because I wrote an LA Times piece when news of this lawsuit came out. Uh, I'm not gonna read it to you, although I've been reading it, and it's a great, great piece. <laughs> and I'm, I'm currently trying to find a co-author to write the book sequel for me, the book version, which I've decided to entitle, Why Are Asians So Dumb? <laughs> we are really good at taking tests. There's no one better taking tests than Asians, clearly. But we do not know squat about politics. And the reason why is because Asians continuously, by huge majorities, vote for the Democratic Party. It's not really a partisan thing, but it happens to be the Democratic Party, which nominates justices and judges to the Supreme Court who have never voted to strike down an affirmative action policy. Now, let, me give you the number. let me give you the numbers. In the 2012 election, uh, first of all, Asians used to be one of the most loyal uh, minority groups to the Republican Party. In 1996, Asians voted for Bob Dole. 
Nobody voted for Bob Dole. <laughs> but we voted for Bob Dole. Realizing the error of our ways, Asians have voted reliably for the Democratic Party ever since. Uh, just take some recent numbers. In 2012, I, I'm, and I'm living up to Professor Koppelman's worry about tribalism here, I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. but In 2012, uh, Asians voted for Barack Obama by 76%. In 2016, that went down. Uh, uh, Asians voted for Hillary Clinton by 66%. Still, uh, in both cases, the only demographic group that voted more for the Democratic candidate were African Americans. So in both cases, Asians are voting for the Democrat not only more than Hispanics, more than single mothers. All the cartoons that the White House made up back in those days about people who need to vote Democrat, Asians voted more than all of them. And then after news of Patrick's lawsuit came out, uh, after all the facts about Harvard's affirmative action policies, after the news of the mayor of New York City uh, deciding to try to, to reduce the number of Asians who are getting into the magnet schools in New York City on a race-neutral test, uh, Stuyvesant and Bronx High, you might have heard some of these schools. I actually have a special love for Stuyvesant because my uh, wife went to Stuyvesant. My wife was uh, not particularly wealthy. Um, if she had not gone to Stuyvesant, I never would have met her. Um, on the other hand, she couldn't have been that smart and she still gone to Stuyvesant because she married me. <laughs> anyway, after all the news of these policies come out, in the midterm elections, Asians voted Democrat for Democratic congressional candidates by 77%. And this makes no sense. This is why I think Asians are dumb at politics. <laughs> uh, Asians, you would think, based on all the other demographic qualities they have, would vote Republican, vote conservative. Right, so uh, Asians are the, uh, and also I should note, it's weird to put Asians all in one group because mm -hmm. it represents so many different countries uh, and people under, most of whom hate each other back in the, home, <laughs> old, in the old country, right? So it's strange that Indians and Pakistanis in the same racial group and Koreans and Japanese in the same racial group. Well, actually most everybody hates the Japanese back in Asia, <laughs> but it's very strange to lump us all into one uh, demographic group. But if you take them as a collective, they are uh, the most uh, economically successful, or wealthiest, if you want to call it that, uh, of the different racial groups. They're most highly educated, uh, the most likely to run a small business, um, the most religious, uh, the lowest divorce rates. So you would think if there were a party uh, that uh, Asians would support, it would be the Republican Party. And then I add on to that, the party which consistently nominates judges and justices who oppose affirmative action, for the most part. Uh, you know, I'd say 95, 98% of the judges Republicans have appointed have opposed affirmative action. And if uh, Asians consistently tell pollsters that is the one issue they care about more than anything else is getting a fair shake in, educa in uh, higher education admissions. But you would think uh, Republican deregulation policies and low tax cuts and so on and so forth, you would think Asians would vote Republican. So for me, the interesting thing about all of this is why don't they, given all the evidence that Patrick has laid out? I don't even think it's even hard to reach the conclusion that Harvard is discriminating against Asians on the basis of race. I'm a university professor, unfortunately. Uh, I've been one since before Prop 209 passed in California, which Dr. Nagai mentioned. It was a case at Berkeley before Prop 209 passed. Asians were roughly about 18 to 20 percent of the population of the undergraduate body every year. Prop 29 went away. 
and it's now 40%. Uh, and that's with a lot of cheating, don't get me wrong. I mean, they're, they're, Berkeley also uses a holistic admissions process. I think it has a lot to do with Professor Coughlin said, there's a lot of self-illusionary behavior going on with our admissions officers who have a lot of nice rhetoric, but I think everyone involved in higher education knows what's going on, and that is there's a lot of racial balancing in admissions, even if they won't admit it. And I don't think it's a hard question that uh, I think the Supreme Court has gone down the wrong path here, whether you're conservative or liberal. Uh, the idea that uh, diversity used to be a means to some end. Now it's an end. And what, how it used to be a means, but now diversity has become, and I think that is the biggest change I've seen on this issue over the last 30 years of this, at the Supreme Court. And why is diversity an end in and of itself? What human good does it produce? Uh, according to Justice O'Connor in the Supreme Court, I guess racial diversity produces ideological, this is the logic of the case, ideological diversity which produces a better education. I don't know if that's true at Berkeley because none of my students seem very ideologically diverse except for the teacher. I think we do a pretty good job in class arguing with, I do a good job arguing with all those liberals all the time. But I still find it extremely uh, offensive and stereotypical to say, oh, if we have racial diversity, we will have ideological diversity because to me that assumes that particular races share particular ideologies, which I just think cannot be true. Uh, and I think is uh, quite insulting, actually, to all of us, not just uh, racial minorities. So putting all that easy stuff aside, to me the hard question is, why do Asians consistently vote Democratic? So I started to do some research, and so there's this well-known book I highly recommend to all of you by uh, Norman Podhoritz called Why Are Jews So Liberal? Uh, a lot of the same demographics I read out about Asians are true or were true of Jews, and Jews also historically and to this day vote uh, Democratic by large numbers, although I'll note uh, that voted, I think, almost the majority voted for Nixon. So after that, they learned their lesson, and so they've never gone back to the Republican Party, I suppose. But uh, uh, Port Hortz famously said, uh, uh, Jews, how do you put it? He said, Jews live like Episcopalians, but vote like Puerto Ricans. Right? So I wonder what he would say about Asians. He'd probably say something, Pud Hortz would probably say, Asians uh, uh, live like Episcopalians, or they live like Mormons, yeah. but, they, <laughs> uh, but they vote like Puerto Ricans, I suppose. <laughs> this actually had a better line like that. The LA Times took it out of the piece, I'm afraid, not surprisingly. Um, so what explains this? So Pud Hortz's argument about Jews was that Jews are liberal because they fear Christians. There's been such a long history of Jewish-Christian conflict uh, that is particularly with evangelicals. I don't know if this, any of this is true, but that was Port Hortz's explanation. I think it's particularly not true now. But uh, when he wrote his book in the late 90s, early 2000s, that was his view. The interesting thing to me is that that cannot possibly be true about Asians. Asians are actually highly uh, religious, and actually a large number of Asians are members of evangelical Christian churches. Um, let me tell you, I had to go to a bunch of these boring uh, religious ceremonies when I was a kid, and I still don't understand what was going on. Um, so I don't understand why are Asians so heavily uh, supporting a party which puts into place judges and justices, and let's be clear, it's only the Supreme Court that can change our national policy on affirmative action, is the, that consistently support a, par, a policy that harms their most dear interests. So I've... Uh, Three explanations. 
none of which I know are true or not because I'm a professor, I'm not gonna do research on this. <laughs> One, uh, it could be urbanization. So I think uh, Asians do tend to be more uh, urban perhaps uh, than other immigrant groups at first. Uh, and I'd have to say, uh, when was the last time you saw a conservative win a mayorship in a major city? <laughs> I think conservatives, Republicans, whatever you wanna call them, have given up uh, competing for political office in major cities, so uh, liberals control all the levers of power in any major city, and so if you're uh, an immigrant from another country, particularly one where you left an authoritarian government you don't, or a socialist government, you don't want to get in trouble with the authorities, you're going to play ball with the liberals who run the city. Maybe that's it. So maybe Asians over time will become more balanced as they leave uh, the cities. Two, it could be universities. I think this is a, a strange phenomenon I've noticed being a professor. <coughs> Asians uh, really respect higher education. As I said before, they tell pollsters, Asian families tell pollsters, uh, college, university admissions is the most important thing to them. Well, where is the uh, ideology of racial diversity most deeply entrenched in our society? It is in the universities. And so if Asians are setting their best and brightest to these schools with fancy names, where uh, they are taught that there are too many of them <laughs> and there should, and the racial balancing is okay. And there are all kinds of fancy theories about uh, why different racial proportions should be held in society. Well, that's what they're gonna learn at the universities. The third one, and this is the only thing I can think of that would explain uh, the strange, uh, to me, uh, increase in Asian support of the Democratic Party when that party would never appoint any judge who opposes affirmative action after the facts of this lawsuit came out, after the facts of what New York City is going to do with the magnet schools, uh, is Donald Trump and immigration. I think it's gotta be the case, I suppose, that uh, Asians, like other minority groups, are reacting to the symbolism of uh, the president's immigration statements and some of the statements of people in the Congress, um, even though I don't think those policies would have a big impact on them. I don't think it's because of the numbers or who's coming in from what countries. Uh, in fact, I, I, it's quite clear that immigration policy since 1965 has been very favorable to Asians. But it's, I think it's because just of the symbolism. Some of the things Professor Koppelman was referring to, there's just a sort of symbolism involved uh, with that. And that seems to be, to me, driving, uh, maybe driving Asian Americans away from the uh, conservative wing of our politics, even though that is the wing who has the policies that would most benefit them as a group. So let me close by just saying, uh, what's the remedy? That's the thing I think that's uh, interesting in all this affirmative action talk. Suppose uh, uh, Patrick wins and the Supreme Court overrules uh, Bruder. <coughs> what are universities gonna do? Are they going to go, do you think that they're really going to adopt a race neutral uh, process? Does anyone really think that? You're gonna have enormous amounts of money spent by universities to try to figure out something that still produces the right results. It won't be on the, they just come up with something else other than the personality score, right? I have a personality score, by the way, so uh, ridiculous. I mean, it's just sort of, I mean, there's a billion and a half people in China, they none of them have personalities? I mean, it's just, <laughs> right? it's just sort of the most ridiculous thing I ever heard of that the Asians would, that any racial group would have different <coughs> scores on a personality factor. It seems kind of stupid and silly. But 
The problem for, I think, for all of us as lawyers to think about is if universities are still intent, which I certainly are, to produce a certain <coughs> racial balance, not because of outside pressure, the bureaucrats inside universities just believe this is a good thing to achieve. They will come up with some other measure how our courts, because generally we tend to be suspicious of judicial activism, how are we going to ask for, how are courts going to effectively monitor uh, whatever universities come up with next to try to determine uh, whether there's racial animus behind it? I think that's going to be extremely, extremely difficult. Um, so uh, I have no answer there. Um, but I would uh, love to hear any, uh, you know, one thing is, I just throw this out, is, you know, it's just going to take lots of lawsuits every time they come up with something new, and maybe the burden of proof should shift to force universities to explain themselves. Um, at, least, at least that's what happened here, and just watching Harvard try to explain its own policies and how it worked showed how ridiculous they were. So uh, thank you very much, and I look forward to the questions and comments. leave plenty of time for questions from the audience, but let me exercise a at least a little bit of moderator prerogative. First, I want to invite everybody, if, they, if anybody wants to offer any sort of response uh, to anything that's been said on the panel. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll respond to a couple things, including something that Professor Kaufman said and, and something that Professor Yu said, and that, and that is just, there's a couple, there's been, there's been a lot of discussion about the fact, and, and this has actually been very prevalent, I think, in some of the opposition to the lawsuit, is that nobody wants to own what Harvard is doing here, and so and so, you know, Will Consovoy, my partner, and really gives credit for the for the for the complaint, the driving force behind this lawsuit. Um, you know, he goes to these college campuses, and and the first thing that happens when you get on these panels, and the Federal Society is always very good about having a dissenting view on it, is everyone says, "I want to be clear. If what yours was what's happening in your complaint's fine, no one defends that." But then we get these generalized expressions of concern about it being a wedge issue and it increasing racial tribalism. Well, the only people who are actually arguing that the lawsuit is having that effect, I think, you know, are not, they appear to be the, 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 the press and the concerns on the left. And so I don't, I don't, I don't think that that has to be the case, and nor do, I, nor do I believe that this is an example of, of the lawsuit seeking to replace it with nothing. Um, as, as I mentioned, there are, there are you know, Berkeley still has a holistic review process. There are a number of tried and true <coughs> examples of universities, both in this country and states that have banned the use of race in the admissions process, as well as in other countries, um, including very elite universities, Cambridge and Oxford, of getting rid of legacy preferences, of getting rid of other types of preferences, of in actually increasing socioeconomic preferences, which I think everybody would agree that to the extent that African Americans in particular and other groups in this country unfortunately still face a legacy of, of economic challenges that arise from slavery and, and unlawful discrimination, it, the goal should be to help the people who are experiencing that legacy, not those who are fortunate enough to have been born into the middle class advantages that, that, that you know, the, the other, other racial groups have enjoyed. And so, you know, replacing it with a socioeconomic preference I don't view as, as replacing it with nothing, and I think it's much more in line with the professed goals of everybody. Um, and certainly one, I'll just, one interesting fact that came out in the course of evidence, both from the OIR internal reports as well as from the statistical uh, uh, reports offered by the plaintiff's expert, was that Harvard's admissions office gives a small tip for socioeconomic status right now. It is not on the level of some of the tips they give for racial groups. But they do give some 
bump for people from a low socioeconomic status. But what was very interesting is, is if you are African American and you are in the Harvard applicant pool, you don't receive any additional bump beyond the bump you get for being African American on average across the pool. This is not about specific individual applicants. You don't get any, any additionally statistically significant bump by being low income if you're African-American. What that essentially means is, I think what everybody says, is that Harvard, Harvard is, you know, Harvard's use of race is very, is very effective for getting the, the, the sons of doctors and lawyers and, and corporate achievers into Harvard, but it's not doing much for actually either reflecting um, a, a desire to lift up the people who are experiencing the legacies that Professor Koppelman's worried about. So uh, I don't think that, 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 that a socioeconomic status process is nothing, and I don't think that it's, it's uh, it's something that, 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 I think it is something that it's an actual alternative. If I may, <clears throat> before I turn to you, I, I, I wanted to ask a follow-up. Because um, you mentioned that there are certain alternatives that might be available. Uh, there's one alternative you didn't mention, which is not taking federal funding. Is that yeah, The Hillsdale plausible? model, right? Yeah. Exactly. Is yeah. that a plausible thing for schools, or is that just a crazy idea that's not on the table? I, I, I believe it was stipulated at trial, actually, that Harvard's rich. So... <laughs> <laughs> Um, but I think it's but, on that website. But they always <laughs> want more. They're not rich enough. Don't um, forget to give to your class reunion. That's the only one. No, there are colleges that have elected to decline fe federal funding so that they can yeah. do whether or not, I mean, I mean, certainly that would get you out of whatever constraints Title VI imposes on right. you. And so that, I, that would be I just mention on that, that that would not be practical for most universities. So uh, University of California, Berkeley, you know, is allegedly a public institution, receives mo more money from the federal government than the state of California now. So, uh, I th so I don't think any of the major research universities could survive if they cut off all federal funds. Yeah. I'll just say if you're concerned about social class and uh, non-race-based ways of responding to social class, then I think you gotta pull the camera back and stop looking at Harvard. There's just not that many slots at Harvard anyway. Uh, if you, the big shift that's happened with uh, higher education is the shift of financial aid money from need-based to merit-based financial aid. And that's the big effect that uh, keeps people trapped in the lower quartile of uh, socioeconomic groups. And if you have class-based affirmative action at Harvard, that is another form of justice on the cheap. What you really want to do is make it possible for people who can't afford to go to their state university and they're at the right educational level for their state university to be able to go to that state university. But that's going to require a significant redistribution of resources in a way that's got nothing to do with race. Jim, so I, 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 I totally agree with Professor Koppelman on this point that, uh, you know, you could uh, racial if you really want some kind of racial justice or uh, opportunity society, the numbers at college are so far too small to actually do anything about it. The real place you would do it would be K through 12 education. But here again, this goes back to my like, which parties are supporting which policies? I think that the, I find it uh, incredible actually that the efforts to introduce innovation and competition in K through 12 education are also systematically, I, I, th I just don't understand why it's so systematically opposed by one political party that claims to be the most interested in racial justice when the f uh, benefits of things like charter schools and vouchers and so on flow right, pretty predominantly 
to poor inner city kids. I mean, if you really wanted to do something about these outcomes, which I completely support, I would say, yeah, by higher education, it's, over, it's too late. But why not pour more resources in trying to shake up elementary and secondary education where I think uh, we have large numbers of people trapped in inner cities who already have no chance of getting out because of, not because of resources. We have increased resources for primary and secondary education by incredible amounts. It's by the way we dysfunctionally organize those bureaucracies. So I, w I would think that's where we could maybe reach a compromise of some kind in terms of forward policy is to Let's get rid of the way we run our primary and secondary schools. Anything, I think, would be better, actually, but at least try to see if charter schools, scholarships, and all this stuff work, vouchers work. Dr. Gunn? Um, my main comment has to be the change in the composition of the racial groups insofar as immigration, I think, has affected the kind of applicants. Um, I, been asked this question once about Harvard applicants who are black and I had seen somewhere that among those that attended Harvard a large percentage of black enrollees were immigrants and the children of immigrants so this in as much as as few as 30 percent were of American black descent you know who could trace descendants back from slavery so this changes the dialogue again, where we're, we're kind of being reduced to something as simplistic as just skin color, and we're not talking about heritage and history that's being passed down. So the whole diversity issue becomes even more distorted because of immigration. And as a side point, um, you know, the census has been tracking immigration, and they notice that Nigerian immigrants, for example, have the largest percentage of college graduates and of, of African, Af African immigrants. Um, they have a huge percentage of those with graduate degrees. Now, their children are going to go to Princeton. Their children are going to go to Harvard. But their experience is going to be similar to the experience of the immigrant professor whose children are also going to be at Harvard, much more so than um, the lower middle class black kid who's in DC and has to try to work their way out of the neighborhood. So I think that's another consideration. It does work into the immigration debate. Shall we open up some, to some questions? Sir. Yes, does this mic work? Okay. We can hear you. Uh, thank you for the panel. And good to see you again, Professor Yu. Your, uh, good to see you too. Your <laughs> <laughs> it's always a reunion and a pleasure to hear all your comical uh, analysis. Um, your, your, My your comical com analysis? That's <laughs> <laughs> um, this funny. No, your, your, your comment about, I, this is the first time I've heard this, but uh, the Asians living like Mormons but voting like Puerto Ricans, I, I, I have experienced a, uh, a, a silent chuckle while I was uh, hearing that for the first time, but I agree with you. You gave actually some uh, really excellent uh, compare and contrast analysis to uh, the remedial question. That's one thing that I want to focus on, but before I ask, jump into that question, to Ms. Athean, uh, to your point about diversity, 
diversity, if anybody ever look at the, the root word, die, is almost like divide. So I'm all for diversity, but when there's ideological difference that Professor Yu has mentioned about, uh, there's no unity in, ideo in ideology when there's too much diversity uh, because there's a division. Uh, but going back to your point, Professor, um, I think the whole affirmative action talk and remedy. Do you have uh, a question? Analysis you we, I, just, I, I don't sure. mean to be impolite. Could, you, could you speak on the point about um, to, uh, the, the liberal professors, there's no surprise that they outweigh the conservative professors on campus. So if you want to broaden the, the, the question, could you speak on those points to see if there are cause and effect to the, the, the issues at hand that you presented? Well, uh, I think it's... Uh, Thank you. I thought, uh, A, with Gruder, the idea that uh, maybe it's true that you want ideological diversity uh, in colleges and universities that produces better educational outcomes, although you know, in the Supreme Court case, there was no evidence produced to this effect. The court just said it. Or at least, I think what they actually did is they deferred to the views of university presidents, who I would really not trust on this issue. <laughs> but you know, usually they ask for money when they are other things, I really don't trust them. But that was what the court did, uh, was to equate ideological diversity with racial diversity. Why not just see if universities are producing ideological diversity in the first place? which I would say they are not. If you look at, uh, you know, John McGinnis did this nice study about campaign contributions by, uh, I think he did one on law professors, and I think Jim Lindgren then tried to do one on professors. And so uh, I think he found something like 91 or 92% of all university and college professors give to the Democratic Party. And it, now that's just the ones who give, but that's some sign of, the heavy imbalance in the college and university systems. Toward, uh, so if you, you know, if the Supreme Court really cared about ideological diversity, then perhaps they should hear more cases by uh, conservative professors claiming discrimination in hiring and promotion. But again, this is a uh, you know judicial capability problem because um, I'm sure there are many people here. I hope so. Who uh, particularly younger members of the Federal Society who have considered or thought about an academic career, um, but are too discouraged by uh, the reputation of universities for ideological discrimination. Um, I don't, I, I mean, I think it's true. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't know if it's, if it's intentional or unintentional. I had this, uh, I will say I had this interesting uh, debate with a professor of the English department at Berkeley, which is one of the great English departments. And I was giving him a hard time because I didn't. I said, I don't think there are any conservatives in your department. He said, of course there are no conservatives. Uh, how can there be? He said, you can't be a good academic and be conservative. <laughs> and I was like, what are you talking about? This is like, you know, one of the finest English parts. And he said, because to be conservative means you always defend the existing order. And good academics challenge the way things are. And I was like, have you actually looked at, you know, who's defending the status quo these days and who's actually challenging it. It's not the way you want, but anyway, so, I, I, you know, I think if the court were serious at all, you know, there, but we have, I don't think there is really any serious Supreme Court law about ideological discrimination in university hiring. 
Uh, I'll just agree sure, that uh, it's a serious problem. That's why uh, you should go to law schools that have faculty members like John McGinnis and Jim Lindgren, and Steve <laughs> <Collins> <laughs> who said the Pledge of Allegiance last night. Very good. Uh, you know, you, those yeah. are the schools you should go yeah. to. <laughs> All Northwestern faculty. That's true. Uh, Kurt Levy and uh, John, your your remark reminded me of what people sometimes say to me, which is, you know. You're Jewish. How can you be conservative? So, uh, you know, similar uh, views that we should all uh, all adhere to the same uh, same values. Um, but in any case, um, this is mostly for Patrick. Um, is there some tension, or you know, maybe you can maybe I'm getting this wrong, but some tension between their claim, the admission by Harvard that um, they do give preferences to blacks and Hispanics, and their claim that they're not discriminating against against Asian Americans. Um, I mean, by definition, if you're giving preferences to blacks and Hispanics, aren't you discriminating against the other groups, including whites and, and Asian Americans? Or is their argument just we're not discriminating any more against Asians than we are against whites? And I guess my second question, well, my second question, I guess, would be for all of you. Why this resistance to socioeconomic preferences. Um, I mean, given that states like California and uh, Texas, when it, when it was under the Hopwood decision, did achieve um, racial diversity using socioeconomic preferences. And, you know, again, one would argue a deeper type of diversity, given that, you know, it wasn't just affluent minorities. Why the resistance? I know that people say in their official positions, well, we, we can't achieve the same diversity. But, you know, at least over a beer with some of these people after a debate, it seems like, at least to me, more it's more of a philosophical objection, just that, you know, treating white poor people the same as black poor people is to sort of deny the, you know, plight of uh, the discrimination suffered by, uh, by African Americans. But in any case, uh, I'd like to hear your views on why there's so much resistance. Uh, let me address the first point, and I can briefly comment on the second point and let the other panelists do that. On, uh, with respect to the first question, is there some tension? Uh, I mean, it, college admissions is a zero-sum game. That's especially true in an elite university such as Harvard. So that, that's just math. I mean, that's, that's there. Now, under the existing Supreme Court framework, since you are actually allowed to discriminate to some extent on the basis of race, or at least in favor of, of, of certain racial groups, um, uh, you, you, there is there's a bit of a there's a bit of sort of an intellectual thought as to how do you how do you distinguish between what's unlawful discrimination and what's lawful discrimination and the one way that we have conceived of that and I think it's as logical a way as any although I'm I'm happy to be corrected is is one can look at what the effect of racial preferences is you know versus versus whites and, and Asian Americans and one can then just actually say well let's just look at what's happening with whites and Asian Americans because. If, if Asian Americans are being treated different as whites and everyone agrees that they're not getting, as a group, on average, any kind of racial preference, then a negative statistical effect just between whites and Asians would be suggestive of actual intentional discrimination against Asian Americans. And that's what a lot of the statistical fight that we're having with respect to the personal score is. The baseline in that case is white applicants. You do a logistic regression, you basically you know, compare apples to apples, and you, and you, and you say, well, are you know Asian American applicants with the same qualifications or the same you know criteria being being treated differently than whites? And that the answer you know like I said is 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 if you if you don't control for personal score, the answer is by both experts it's undisputed is yes. There's a statistically significant discriminatory effect against Asian Americans. So um, 
the, the larger point is there. I mean, Asian Americans, I think, are disadvantaged by racial preferences in a zero-sum game, but that's, you can look at that as a broader question than just how are they being treated against similarly situated white applicants. Um, the, the, the larger question, what's the hesitancy? I'll, I'll posit two based on arguments that have come up. One is, the goal here is to achieve racial diversity. That is the end. And so nothing's more efficient to achieving racial diversity than using race. So that's like, that's one of the objections that is flat out raised at some point. It's like, well, if, if our goal here is to get the racial diversity, why are we gonna take the long way around? And what the Constitution or Title VI might say is beside the point, I suppose. Um, uh, the, the second objection to it is, is, somewhat, is, is somewhat financial, I suppose. There's some concern that that's gonna require a lot of money, and this is much easier. Whether that's, again, a, a satisfactory constitutional or statutory answer is what's, what's to be adjudicated. I think that the main, go back to the main form of class-based affirmative action that matters is subsidizing education, uh, not cutting the budgets of state universities in order to force them to raise their tuition, uh, not having people graduate from college with $100,000 of debt. Now, that, uh, and just let the admissions offices make their decisions on academic merit. Yeah, I was very smart. I graduated college in 1979. I think that today, uh, and uh, you know, with lots of Pell Grants, I mean, I'm a Pell Grant kid, uh, I think that today I would have to yield my spot at the University of Chicago to somebody dumber and richer. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, good afternoon. Um, my mother is uh, 85 years old, and in 1955, she applied to law school at the University of Texas and she received a letter stating that uh, she, as a black woman, would not be admitted, but that uh, Texas would give her a voucher to attend an all-black school in Mississippi. Now, when I was at Stanford, uh, proponents of affirmative action argued that without uh, affirmative action, there would be a return to a de jure segregation discriminatory system. But from what I'm hearing from the panelists, uh, that wouldn't be the case, that there are alternatives to, uh, to outright discrimination and affirmative action. How can you package your message better uh, to, to uh, defeat the argument that if you eliminated affirmative action or if it would were declared unconstitutional, that there would be a return to 1955. Why are you all look at me? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, well, uh, I, I, I will say this. I mean, one, one thing that's, that's important to remember, look, we all, most of the people in this room move in somewhat elite American societies. You know, most of us, obviously, lawyers, academics, um, you know, this issue is not viewed the same way by the general population as it is by elite society. And when I say that, it is not viewed the same way by minority populations in this country. There was a post-Fisher II poll that showed, that showed large majorities of, of, of Americans across, across ethnic and racial groups opposed the use of race in college. So, so certainly there needs to be, I think, a better job of, 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 of making that difference. I think that the work that's been done on race-neutral alternatives, which is based which, which is based on the actual experience in all the states that have eliminated the use of race as a factor in college admission are valuable ways to get the word out that this is not a return to, to an actual segregated university. And does, 
I mean, come on, does anybody in this room believe for a second that if a university were told it could not legally use race in the admissions process, it would abandon any attempt to achieve racial diversity on campus? I mean, that's just, I mean, I just don't think that's, I, I don't think that's a sustainable position. It has not been the experience in the other states. I, 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 I think part of uh, what you said, first of all, congratulations for your mother for uh, overcoming that kind of discrimination and also having to have you as a child. Um, for <laughs> clearly, she was able to live a long and happy life despite your obstacle. Um, but I, I think part of it is, uh, I, I've been very moved by uh, the arguments that Shelby Steele makes, that a lot of people who uh, could, could come up with alternate policies, they feel a profound sense of guilt. Uh, for the, uh, for example, for the treatment of African Americans in the country's history, and for uh, conduct as the kind you described happened to your mother, and I, I think it ties in with what Professor Koppelman said about affirmative action is a cheap, easy way to assuage your guilt for university professors or elite society. Say, look, we're doing something about it, but you're not really doing something about the more serious problem, which I think is K through 12 education. And so I think if you were going to uh, try to sort of figure out a policy that is not just about um, a zero-sum fighting between racial groups over limited seats uh, at Harvard. Um, you would want to, and I think President George W. Bush tried this in his first term, you would want to lay out a series of policies to create more opportunity in society. And to me, that's m more focuses on socioeconomic class and also maybe just an outright rejection. And this is where I think George W. Bush didn't go, it, it just, uh, I think, following Martin Luther King's rhetoric, you know, rejecting the use of race you know, uh, in all its forms and focusing, as he said, on the content of your character, not the color of your skin. Uh, but pairing that with something that uh, creates more economic opportunity for the people who are trapped in our inner cities. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, it's a very good panel. Thank you very much. Um, I have a two-part question. Professor you, you kind of anticipated some of the points I'm about to make. But um, first, if um, this, this Harvard case goes to the Supreme Court and they strike down Grutter, would it necessarily strike down the personal assessment uh, factor um, in the current uh, way they're um, rating students? I mean, you know, though we know that it's, this is a proxy for race, it's only, it's only a statistical relationship. They can simply claim it's a coincidence, right? Um, a second question, I guess, has to do with um, something you just uh, mentioned, uh, Mr. Shawbridge, that universities at this point are going to continue to practice some sort of some sort of affirmative action, whatever the Supreme Court says. And I think uh, as long as I guess diversity is our national religion, and I, I guess I'm at risk of being the skunk at the picnic, I, I really don't think you know racial and ethnic diversity is our strength. And it's um, I, I guess what. Um, what do you think we could do as a society to sort of, I guess, discredit or sort of destroy this idea? Um, you're certainly correct that, that, that striking down Grutter is not, is not, says nothing about whether or not college, how colleges have to select their applicants and whether or not they can use a holistic admissions process. As, as uh, Professor Yu pointed out, uh, Berkeley still uses a holistic admissions process. And there may be 
outright cheating. There may be, you know, the attempt to use race, you know, on the sly without being so explicit about it. And that would require, you know, more careful policing. But there would be real value, I would think, just in a society that values what law is and how we apply laws to have at least a statement that, that, that this is not allowed and to make it more difficult to do it and to, if that has to be litigated or policed by the federal government, so be it. That's true, that's true under a lot of regimes today. Um, but, but I don't think it's, I don't think it's a reason not to pursue these cases and certainly not, not a reason to, to accept some level of discrimination against, against groups including Asian Americans in this particular case. Um, so, so, so I think that that's, the two things, the two points are, are unrelated to me with respect to that. I think like on, the ho on the holistic, I, I, I would expect uh, more universities after Grutter, if Grutter struck down, would switch to a holistic system. Uh, the one thing about uh, being on the inside and having watched my uh, colleagues struggle mightily to figure out ways to get around Prop 209 with, very, with not too much success, but the one thing about holistics is that it's expensive to run a system like that, right? So, the, you know, we're, I, I assume most of us went to law school. S several else may went several times. Uh, <laughs> but in law school, you know, we don't have the huge admission staffs that colleges do. Right? The university, law schools don't want to pay for the 30 admissions officers that Harvard University probably has. You know, the dirty secret is most of the seats in law school are determined primarily by GPA and LSAT scores. But uh, at Berkeley, we have a holistic system for half our spaces. Uh, so you could go to Northwestern and learn empirics, or if you just did bad on the LSAT, you could <laughs> apply to Berkeley. But the holistic system is, if, you know, is gonna cost universities and colleges a lot of money yeah. to implement in the way you might think would happen after Grutter. And so I'm like, great, make them pay more money to live up to their ideals. The second thing I would just point about the holistic system is that it's gonna be very difficult, again, I think, for courts to monitor whether they truly are engaging in a, let's consider socioeconomic barriers that someone had to overcome, or are they secretly just cheating? I mean, one effect, I think, after Patrick's lawsuit is that the Harvard admissions office will ban all emails or written memos <laughs> of all kinds, and they'll do everything in person talking to each other, right? They're never gonna write anything down again. And I'm sure after this lawsuit, no college and university admissions office is gonna ever write anything down in email. Oh, they might use whatever that app is where it disappears after 30 seconds, <laughs> right? Along with the, with the inappropriate pictures they probably send each other, but, right? They're never gonna write anything down. So I don't understand, I don't see how a court is gonna be, you know, once all the universities go to holistic. So they would, they could use a system which, uh, as a conservative, I just instinctively don't like, which is, you know, prima facie differences based on statistical disparities, right? which is kind of what's going on here. Uh, you know, when it's employed in other contexts, I've really not thought that should be the way to get into court is just show, oh, there's differential racial hiring in this industry or that industry, therefore you already get into court and can file a, a demand the other side prove they don't have racial animus. But that might be the way the law goes if every university just say, we're not gonna tell you what we're doing, we're just gonna look at the whole person now. I guess that still speaks to the idea that diversity is an end of, in and of itself. Again, which I think is a corruption, it's a very bad thing in my view. So how do we destroy this idea? I mean, you may not have an answer, but I guess that that's, to me seems to be the ultimate question. They're gonna to continue to do it so long as society seems to value this idea. Uh, so, I. Uh, you know, it's, 
Interesting. You know, if you talk to people in the sciences, you know, Berkeley's a very strong science university, they wouldn't say the purpose of education is diversity itself. <laughs> I, I, I agree. Somehow diversity went from being a means, right? The idea of diversity helps achieve some other human good to becoming an end in itself. And I don't understand what the end in itself actually is. You know, why is diversity for its own sake good? So I, but I don't see how to diffuse it. Being at a university, you, you, you might have different opinions. I think this has become so hardwired into professors mm -hmm. and the way they think that it's, go, it's not gonna go away. In fact, over time, it's been getting stronger and stronger. Mm -hmm. uh, really, which is different than saying we should have different people, you know, different subjects talk. I mean, that's a different kind of diversity. But just the idea of diversity itself, I think, has become so firmly implanted. I think more than any other institution in our society, it's become so firmly implanted in academia. I don't see how it gets uprooted. Actually, I blame Lewis Powell. Oh. Uh, <laughs> that, uh, you know, it was clear that uh, you know, there's a strong imperative to remedy the history of racial injustice when Bakke has decided it's only a few years after the Civil Rights Act got passed. And uh, you know, Powell says, you can do this, but you must use the word diversity over and over again, and that's your free pass. And they do it, and of course it takes on a life of its own, and of course it makes not a lick of sense. But this is interesting um, just to p p oh. pursue this, because yeah, I agree, he could have said, what affirmative action is as a remedy for past wrongs, which mm -hmm. I think a lot of people would agree to. Stephen said that. Yeah. No one listened to him. Yeah. <laughs> no, so the, the, the problem oh. is that uh, the one thing that's good about this that gives me hope is that I agree that this was created by the Supreme Court. Right? So maybe the first step is for the Supreme Court to confess its error and at least start the process by getting rid of its elevation of diversity as the real reason for these policies. Okay, I want to say from the statistician's um, perspective, one of the ways of holding institutions accountable is to have their admissions data made public. You can strip it of private info, you know, but um, we, Center for Equal Opportunity, we've spent years trying to FOIA um, flagship universities to see if, you know, what exactly are they doing, and it takes forever. There are lots of roadblocks. Some are more accommodating than others. Um, and especially when you talk about state universities, you're talking about taxpayer money. Um, you're talking about does a, does a university have a 10% plan? What does it look like? Um, it does not involve a lot of work on the part of a university to make the data stripped of individual identifiers, to make it public, because they, have, they all have this data available. They're reported routinely to the U.S. News and World Report and to the federal government. So this is how you hold them accountable. <coughs> you need groups to basically monitor and make sure that they're doing what they say they're doing. Hi, uh, my name's Ken Masubi. <coughs> I'd like to ask my wife a question. <laughs> uh, and it, it, uh, rather this to is a unique opportunity. have her elaborate, <laughs> yes, indeed. Are you guys really You'll married, or is this a, some again. kind of inside joke? <laughs> yeah. You guys really are married? I wasn't referring to Mr. Koppelman. You're not a lawyer. You real, you're not a lawyer. You don't realize how inappropriate this is. Yes. Well, <laughs> um, uh, you had a very interesting observation about uh, a Harvard um, trying to diversify by uh, hitting uh, 
say, people in Nevada or Montana, oh. but uh, add how that had a, 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 a racial ethnic uh, <coughs> uh, component I, in yeah. it. And, and I, I just wanted to add my own teaching experience here at Michigan State at James Madison College. Uh, now, at the time, both James Madison College, about 1,500 undergrads within the huge Michigan State system, plus the, the undergraduate admissions, virtually open admissions, uh, virtually open admissions. Um, and I observed that uh, among the smarter students in my classes were African-American students. And they all uniformly came out of Detroit or Milwaukee uh, from an inner city Catholic school. And I asked around, um, and it, it turned out uh, subsequently, this is 25 years ago, subsequently uh, uh, I'd ask um, my graduate students who were African American about their own backgrounds, and each and every single one of them went to a Catholic school, hmm. right, inner city Catholic school. And these are the sorts of institutions, Catholic and other religious schools and other private sorts of schools set up in inner cities uh, that are being crushed by the administrative state. And the administrative state is a bipartisan creation. It's not just a liberal democratic uh, creation. Um, and, and so I think there are modest forms of affirmative action because uh, James Madison College under the dean, then Dean Bill Allen, uh, wanted to get more of these students in, not because they were African American, but simply because they added quality to the student body. Um, because they, uh, and so there, there are dual motives here that can lead, I think, to some good results. So, Dr. Nagai. Oh. Um. <laughs> Oh, that, this came up in conversation. It was a response to, um, I think, what came out in the lawsuit when um, uh, you were examined. Um, I think the admission officer, Fitzsimmons is his name, he was on the stand. Yeah, you were talking sparse country? Yes, sparse about? country. I, I'll just briefly touch, oh, on, yes. touch on Oh, yes. Oh, that made me mad. So, so, <laughs> so, so Harvard, like a lot of universities, buys standardized test results from high school students and uses that for recruiting, and they basically have you know, groups who they target their recruiting for, they send out letters, they try to get them to apply to Harvard. And, and, and one of the things that came out in the, in the process was that um, they have a variety of breakdowns and, and they want, you know, high achieving groups by ethnicity, so they target high scores and, and obviously the SAT bands change depending on, on what group that they're targeting because they're basically trying to target the top performers and of course, the, the, the legacy of standardized testing and, and other educational disparities in our country is that different racial groups do differently on some standardized tests. So what was interesting about it was that in so-called what they call sparse country, um, which is basically outside of the coasts and the heavy metropolitan areas where presumably Harvard does not get as much applications or, or at least there's not the same level of you know, highly uh, high performing students, uh, Harvard <coughs> Asked for you know you know test results and the effect of it is that their floor in sparse country, which only applies to white students or people who don't say their race, is lower than the floor that they apply for Asian Americans <coughs> nationwide. And what that means is that if you are in sparse country, which to be clear includes such you know undeveloped wastelands as Las Vegas, Nevada, and Phoenix, Arizona, 
Um, they are. <laughs> but, 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 but other, other you know, if you are in one of these states, you might get a recruiting, and if you score 1320 or 1310 for whites. Yeah, the floor was 1310, it goes up to 1370. If you score between 1310 and 1370 and you're white, Harvard will recruit you with a letter. If you're Asian in the same school, serving, achieving the same score, you will not get a letter from Harvard. Yeah, 1370. So it, it's, it's an interesting, it's an interesting another aspect on what the ways in which Harvard seeks yeah. to shape its class. Yeah. Now, the irony was when you, I believe when Fitzsimmons was on the stand, this was reported in, I believe, the Chronicles, <clears throat> that someone asked, I think, lawyers, how do you explain the, the, the disparity? And he said, well, you know, the, you'd achieve diversity just basically because the white student would be multi, you know, multi-generational, um, American, while the Asian American most likely would be, um, you know, in the country only um, two or three years, or somebody implying that the Im Im applicant would be immigrant. Yeah, yeah, yes, what, what Dean Fitzsimmons, who's been the dean of Harvard College Admissions for going on 30 years now, approximately, mm -hmm. what he testified in response to that question was that when they when they seek students from sparse country, they're looking for a certain type of student who may not have Harvard on the on on their on their radar. And they, he specifically made a reference to the notion that they're looking for students who grew up in sparse country, not someone who arrived a year or two ago. Now, there is a way to look at that statement as, as, as trading upon the stereotypes mm -hmm. that I think underlie a lot of what the evidence against Harvard shows. Whether you want to call it implicit bias or unconscious bias, what, what we're really talking about and what the law has recognized as a form of invidious discrimination is stereotyping. And I think that you see that in the personal score part of the case. I think you see it in the, in, in, in the response to justify the sparse country differences. Um, this is racial stereotyping. It's long been actionable under Title VII and, and, and under Title VI. And, and that's really what this case is about, is racial stereotyping. The irony is, though, that the Asian, a lot of Asian Americans who live in sparse country are, in fact, the descendants of the interned. Um, their grandparents were interned. Um, a lot of them immigrated from Hawaii, where I'm from, you know, to live in Las Vegas. Um, they're Filipino. There have been Americans for multi-generations, and yet they get stereotyped. So in the context of that, I think, you know, that they would have that higher cutoff because they're Asian-American despite of the past history. And that was kind of annoying. <laughs> well, I have thoroughly enjoyed uh, being an, a moderator of this panel. I hope you all have enjoyed this. Please invite our panelists.